0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I am Jason in Brooklyn.
1: Hi, I'm Fraser in Newcastle. I'm Keith in Carlisle.
2: And I'm Jim in Manchester.
0: Fraser and Keith and I are all old hands at Trap One, but for this week we are discussing the new novelization of Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood, which is not new, it's actually more than a decade old. But it's in print for the first time, and we are being joined appropriately by a first-time Trap 1 guest. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Technology-allowing. Technology-permitting, yes. We had some trouble getting the recording going, but hopefully we are all good now, all four of us. Jim, I have had you on Doctor Who Literature before, and you, of course, are just in the very final stages of the Escape to Danger blog. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Escape to Danger?
2: Well, I think um, if you're a collector of the DVDs or a reader of Doctor Who magazine, you might have encountered me because I've had my name in Doctor Who magazine in pretty much every issue for the last decade for one reason or another. Uh, I've been a talking head, um, usually it representing people who are dead uh, <laughs> on, on, the, on the DVDs. So like for Trial of a Time Lord, I was there to be on j side because no one else would be. Uh, and yeah, I've I've been a fan since childhood and then I've been a member of fandom since the early eighties and, uh, I've been involved in conventions and I've, I've, been a toy reviewer for Doctor Who magazine for about 10 years and I've just stopped doing that. And, uh, as everyone else did in the pandemic, I was scrambling for ideas of what to do to keep myself sane and decided the best thing I could do was to read every single target Doctor Who book in publication order. And on, well, yesterday I technically finished the mission, but next Saturday at the time for recording, I'll be releasing my last proper chapter.
0: How did that help your sanity? Did you find your sanity increasing or decreasing after reading (laughs) 155-odd Target novelizations?
2: I think it was useful. I think it was very handy. Um, Also, it got me back into the idea of reading because, you know, we're all busy and I haven't really done a lot of reading. And then suddenly I'm I'm plowing into it. And uh, I read 162 proper Doctor Who novelizations plus 12 um, associated books. And now I'm plowing my way through uh, John the Carre. And um, I've already worked my way through the collective works of Mick Heron, whose um, Slow Horses has just become a... At big TV show.
0: And since this is a Halloween episode, we all four of us are wearing appropriate attire. We are recording the day before Halloween. Jim, you are not only a reviewer and a fan and a blogger and podcaster, but you also are a t-shirt designer. And what are you wearing for us today?
2: I am wearing a design of my own making. Uh, so I'll just show you that. And uh, this is one on my range inspired by the Target books. So this is Scaroth of Jaggeroth ripping his face off (laughs) with a line of dialogue from the book. But unfortunately, I I can't
0: read it from this angle, so maybe you can do the honors. The last of his face fell away in ribbons to the floor. There you go. Lovely. I guess you don't have a Stones of Blood t-shirt design? Uh, I don't, but
2: I also... um, have been a bit of a customizer and model maker so i do have my own five inch scale stones of blood
0: Ooh, the ogre <laughs> there we girls. go
2: i've got a little ogre unfortunately the batteries ran out they used to have little batteries in the bottom and they used to glow but uh, now they awesome. just sit there inert, which is probably the best way isn't it so, so they need batteries jam or they need blood uh, let's say it's batteries but <laughs> next next door's cat hasn't been seen for a while <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was going to say, the copper in blood may be a good conductor, but I don't actually know enough electricity to know whether that's true. (laughs) So I am wearing my It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown t-shirt with the entire Peanuts gang. Keith, you are wearing a slightly scarier Halloween media-themed t-shirt.
3: It's the poster from the original, and shall I say proper, Halloween film.
0: The John Carpenter film.
3: Yeah. Except no sequel.
0: Well, there have been like, I think, 45 sequels over the last 40 years, but we only acknowledge the original.
3: The last film was the 13th they released of the franchise, so it's uh, it's taken over from Jason now.
0: Does that include the two Rob Zombie films, or is that only including the does, original?
3: Yes. Yeah, it includes those as well, but uh,
0: yes. <laughs> But each one rewrites portions of the canon before it. So I think the 2018 Halloween erases Halloweens 2 through 6, et cetera, et cetera. And most of them ignore Halloween 3.
3: It does reboot and reboot and reboot.
0: And Fraser, you are cosplaying as well. Who are you cosplaying as for this recording?
1: Well, I've got me Tom Baker scarf and Tom Baker hat. So no Halloween themes here, just pure fourth doctor cosplay for me
0: which is appropriate because we are discussing a fourth Doctor novelization. Uh, We actually have two. I'm holding both books up on camera. We have the 1980 Terrence Dicks original, and then we have the 2011 David Fisher audiobook, which is now a 2022 Target imprint novelization. The two books have nearly identical covers. We have Andrew Skilleter on the original, and we have Anthony Dry. On the new one, they each have a drawing of Tom Baker, and they each have a drawing of the Caliach, which I don't know how that's you pronounce it, but that's my Brooklyn accent. And then there are different peripherals on uh, on the respective covers. Is everybody here familiar with both, or have we only read the new version for today's recording?
3: Oh, I've read both, but I read the original quite a while ago. I've only reread the uh, the new one.
2: I think I got the brief wrong. Uh, I've just read the Terran Sticks one, so just give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> right, done. Okay, I'm ready now.
0: <laughs> All right, so we're going to discuss primarily today the David Fisher novelization, which is the new one. I am also the host of the Doctor Who Literature podcast, and I have The Stones of Blood coming up in about six weeks. That episode should be out in mid-December. That will be an episode dedicated to the Terence Dicks book primarily, and then I will cover the David Fisher book there, probably in a couple of years when I reach the end of the Target books in publication order. So t- today, this is going to be the David Fisher hour, more or less. And I have a cat on the keyboard who is trying to mess with the recording. She's a mini ogre. Oh. So what we're going to do first is we're going to play this week's version of the Listener Limerick Challenge. Yay! Jim, (laughs) among his many skills, is also a talented limerick writer, so I'm going to have one limerick for each of you. The one that was written by Jim will go to somebody else to guess the last word, and then one of mine will go to uh, Jim and we'll see if he can guess. Are we all ready to play the patented Trap One Listener Limerick Challenge? Oh, yes. Ready as ever. No. <laughs> <Fraser>. <laughs> All right, we'll give Jim a chance to go last. So Fraser, who volunteered first, will go first. Fraser, are you ready? I am ready. <clears throat> His comb over flaps in the breeze. All that stone dust must make him sneeze. He won't let us mock till he's crushed by a rock. When the ogre run over... The freeze... Very good. Razor is a winner. And now, Keith, it is your turn. And this is a limerick that was written by Jim. Keith, are you ready? I am. Stone monsters don't suffer from cramping, though they struggle on floors without ramping. On a night full of pain, the ogre would drain the blood of a couple out. Camping. All right. We are two for two. And if Jim can get his, (laughs) then we'll have a perfect score on the Trap One Listener Limerick Challenge. Jim, are you ready?
2: No. (laughs) Go for it. Go for it.
0: We're going to play anyway. (laughs) This is a game that nobody gets out of. Sort of like uh, Vivian Faye in her uh, stone prison. The Magara's pursuit came just this close. They should have tried a citric acid dose till they're locked in a cell, a 4,000-year hell, where they can't pursue Cesare of... Diplos. All right. Perfect. Ew. <laughs> All right. Now, I will say that Jim and I spent the better parts of 20 minutes on Twitter Messenger before this recording, trying to come up with a rhyme for there's nobody here but us druids. And we each had variations on the theme, but I don't think either one of them is podcast-ready yet, so I'll drop that on <laughs> Doctor Who Literature when I do the Terrence Dix version of Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood in about six weeks' time. Let's go back and let's talk about the Stones of Blood. When did each of you – and I'll start with Jim first as he's a, as he's a first-time Trep1 panelist. When did you each first see Stones of Blood on TV, and what was your overall impression of it?
2: Um, I'm guessing it was between roughly the 28th of October and the 18th of November, 1978. The original air dates. Yeah. Cause, um, I know that I missed a bit of reboss operation because I didn't understand why Leela was being played by a different woman. Uh, I would have been seven years old at this point. So clearly I was thick and, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and I remember pirate planet very clearly. And then I remember bits of stones of blood uh and then uh, i would have seen it again when they released it on vhs um but that would have be been 1993 so i think in the early 90s they released it on vhs and then obviously i've seen it plenty of times since
0: so you would have seen it when you were 7 and then again in your early to mid 20s when you saw it back in 93 on the vhs were there any bits that stuck in your memory from the original yeah. 1978 broadcast
2: um i mean it's just the tone of it really it was the fact that it was uh, all very dark and quite spooky um at least for the first two episodes and then it goes a bit a bit graham williams-y in the last time
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the books of course suffer the exact same fate keith how about you what is your first memories of stones of blood
3: being quite old i remember seeing it on its original broadcast as well um i remember finding it quite frightening um two bits are really stuck in my head. I remember the camping scene quite clearly because um, we go camping and obviously, as soon as we went on our next holiday, it was playing in my head quite a lot and I just got over that. Then the night my man did it with me again, but that's another story. <laughs> and um, I also, the bit um, oddly, the bit that really freaked me out was the uh, when they were sitting, it was uh, Professor Rumford and Romana were back at the cottage and then, the ogre just goes past the window. And for some reason, I found that just like <laughs> really disturbing as a child. And I, I could remember that scene quite clearly. And when I got under uh, when I started buying the VHSs, a lot of things I remembered quite clearly as a child turned out to be completely wrong. And I have just like confabulated in my head over the years. But that scene played out exactly as I remembered it, And I still found it quite disturbing. Now I think it's the uh, juxtaposition between um, just quite an ordinary looking house and like something very bizarre going on outside it. And I think as kids... Looking out of windows is quite creepy sometimes when you don't uh, when you imagine things out there and it was sort of there it was uh, writ large so yeah that's the two bits I remember.
0: Do you still go camping and are you still afraid of ogre popping outside of your tent?
3: No and no. Just, luckily, <laughs> life I discovered hotels and that was the end of tents.
0: <laughs> and Fraser, how about you?
1: Well, I didn't watch it on the original broadcast um, I do have a very good excuse though I wasn't born um, I didn't come along <laughs> until well, We found, we found the either. baby
0: of the podcast recording
1: <laughs> Very much so unfortunately um, So for me it was it was quite possibly a UK gold repeat in the late 90s um, when I first came across it um, If it wasn't that it would have been when I bought the um, Key to Time DVD box set didn't get the vhs for the key to time but i did get the dvd uh, when it was reissued um so sort of early 21st century um it's not one that I have like a massive um stick out you know memory of, of of seeing for the first time it's not one that like jumps out to us i think what's what's more likely than happened is that i've kind of got sucked into a little bit of um received fan wisdom due to the handbooks and whatnot that I've read growing up and just sort of dismissed it a little bit as being as you've said, you know, it it starts off as one story. By the time you get to the end of it, it's it's a completely different one. Um and you know, whether you like the first half or the second half is is very much dependent on what type of Doctor Who you like. Um, So I think I've probably fallen into that trap and been quite dismissive of it. And it's not until more recent times when I've, you know, come back and looked at things with a, you know, fresh pair of eyes that I've actually been able to appreciate the stones of blood for what it actually is. I mean, it is, you know, like I said, two, it could be two very separate stories, you know, folk horror, um, you know, stone circles, bloodthirsty monsters, lots of sort of folklore and, um, you know, Celtic mythology and that sort of stuff packed in the first couple of episodes before you go off into hyperspace for the um, the sort of very... You know, Jim, you said Graham Williams, so I'd say a Douglas Adams-esque second half with the the bickering mm. justice machines. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoy it. I think it's good. Um, they're both... You know, I would would possibly like a bit more of that sort of first half to be played out. Um, But, you know, I can can enjoy the the second half for what it is as well.
0: It's funny for me, I have almost the opposite approach to the story. And I do want to say that everything that fandom has in its received wisdom about the Graham-Williams era is pretty much wrong. Yes, the Williams era gets off to a rough start. Invisible Enemy and Underworld are barely competent, and the Invasion of Time, of course, had production faults as well. But the Williams era just gets better and better as it goes, and the key to time season is almost perfect. falls apart the last couple of serials, but it's not unusual to have a Doctor Who season with a couple of weak stories. The first four, I think, are all excellent. And then Season 17, I think every time I watch it, it just it gets better and better and better. And I think this, being the exact midpoint of the Graham Williams era, really deserves a reevaluation upward. I'll say I saw this for the first time in July 1985 when the Tom Baker cycle on my local PBS station on Long Island, which started February 85, they get to Stones of Blood in July. And I vividly remember that part four would have aired on July 4th. Now, we had one of those old cathode ray tube sets, which had the little uh, knobs sticking out at the bottom of the panel. And you could change the vertical hold and the contrast and the color. So my kid sister would have been five years old, and she discovered those knobs in between... Parts three and part four of The Stones of Blood when she was watching her kids' shows uh, you know, on Nickelodeon, uh, Pinwheel, or PBS, Sesame Street, and Mr. Rogers, and so on. So parts one, two, and three, Mary Tam is wearing a red dress, and then I turn on part four, and her dresses turned purple. I'm like, wait, did she change her dresses in the middle of hyperspace? No, that was my kid sister playing with, with the contrast knobs. So I reported to my dad that... The knobs had been knocked out of alignment, and I'm the one who got in trouble. So my memories of part four of Stones of Blood are kind of hiding with getting the blame for my kid sister's malfeasance, so to speak. Uh, why this was considered a problem, I have no idea. He could have just fixed the contrast, but no, there had to be a <coughs> justice, uh, justice machine-style punishment meted out. But I'll also say that being in the States, we don't really have that tradition of folk horror in, in the same way that you have in the UK. I didn't grow up with any of the hammer horror movies. So for me in the early 80s, especially being that my my name is Jason, our horror is pretty much in the slasher serial killer tradition. So when I was a kid, all the kids watched all the Halloween movies and all the Friday the 13th and this was just around the time that Nightmare on Elm Street was getting started, although this is before Rachel Talalay directed her. So parts one and two I enjoyed for what they were, but they didn't really make an impression on me because I didn't have that folk consciousness. But when I saw the McGarris stuff and Tom Baker put on his uh, barrister's wig and started holding a trial, that really grabbed my attention. As an 11-year-old who had no athletic ability and needed my words to skate by— and then a couple of weeks later, I discovered the Philip Hinchcliffe novelization of Keys of Marinus at my first convention, which has also a very long trial sequence of its own. And that's when I realized. That's what pretty much dictated my future career. I'm now 25 years in the practice of law. So I can thank both Stones of Blood and Keys of Marinus for getting me there. And Stones of Blood just came in a couple of weeks earlier. So for me, the Megara were always the best, the best part of the story. But If you were to line up 100 Doctor Who fans and ask them their opinion on this story, I would be the one out of 100 who thought the Megara stuff was better than the stone circles and the druids.
3: And inspired your career. That's marvelous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) there's there's not a lot of cause to quote the Megara in an actual courtroom, as I've discovered to my chagrin. I can't actually say, (laughs) as I, a mere humanoid, I'm capable of knowing the truth.
2: (laughs) It's strange in the UK as well, because we are exposed to all forms, well, lots of different forms of folk horror from a very early age. There were lots of kids TV dramas that had a, a, a flavor of um, folk horror and legends and things like that. I suppose and in the States,
3: circles, everywhere.
2: and stone circles, yeah. you know, we've got, we got actual old stuff <laughs> all over the country. I suppose Something in the States you've got the, uh, yeah. you, you've got that, the, the um, Indian burial ground mythology, which, as I, I wish I could remember who it was, but one very smart American academic said, um, if you want a really bad horror story, all of the United States is an Indian burial ground. <laughs> but uh, that's that's kind of where you guys will get your, I think a lot of your folk stories. Like, things like Pet cemetery and stuff is is kind of that kind of thing.
0: And Poltergeist as well. That was the yes. continuity for the original Polter- Poltergeist but before I got retconned in the sequels.
2: They retconned them in the sequels? What, do yeah. you mean they, they they did remove the
0: bodies, or...? In Poltergeist 1, it was uh, a burial ground. In Poltergeist 2, it was Cain, the old guy, and his band of uh, religious freak followers who had been walled up alive in a cave.
1: The moral of the story there is, don't watch the sequels.
0: Yes, you know, uh, <laughs> my, my, my 12-year-old daughter was very excited to watch the original Poltergeist for this Halloween month, because she had recently binged all of Stranger Things, and she was aware that Stranger Things is 1980s cliff notes, and she wanted to revisit a lot of the source material. And after I showed her the first Poltergeist, she had no interest in the sequels at all. The first one just did not land on her, because it is a very unique brand of early 80s Reagan Americana, and it just doesn't speak her language. So I don't have a chance to try out the second or uh, third movies or the TV series or the remake on her. So you
2: should have shown her a 1980s Doctor Who because the soundtrack is exactly the same as Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just load on... of spooky things going on with wow.
0: Oh early I'll 70s. The, the Patty Kingsland soundtrack from uh, part four of Logopolis, the Waka Chica guitar. <laughs> hmm. All right, so before we get to David Fisher, let's briefly talk about Terrence Dix only as a placeholder. When did you guys each discover the Terence Dix novelization, which of course came out quite a bit earlier?
3: I got it in a secondhand shop when I first came to Living Carlisle. I remember it quite clearly because they were selling them off really, really cheap. So it was one of my 40p bargains. So I got that. I got Destiny and Daleks, loads of it, all with very similar looking covers. And uh, yeah, I got it then and I read it in my tiny bedsit when I first came up here.
2: And I think I, I would have been around about the same year as publication. So it was 1980. Um, My local library used to be quite good at getting the books in, and that's where my addiction first started. So by 1980, I had a regular um, collection going on, until Christmas 1980, when I got my first actual um, Target books of my own.
0: Which was the first one you purchased on your own, rather than just borrowing out of the library?
2: Well, the first ones I got bought for me, uh, I know were... Carnival of Monsters, um, Loch Ness Monster, Keys of Marinus, and Ark in Space. Um, the first one I bought on my own—I I can't remember. It might have been one of the Davison ones. Might be possibly even the uh, maybe the Five Doctors. Maybe something like that.
0: That's that's a good one for your for your for your first self purchase. Fraser, how about you? Did you ever read the Stones of Blood, Terence version, before the David Fisher came out?
1: Um, yes, um, I read this about. Three or four months ago. So again, I'm playing the baby of the group. Um, when I knew I was coming on to talk about the David Fisher version, I thought, oh, bloody hell, I best read the Terence Dix version. So went on and bought myself a, a secondhand copy of, of the Terence version. So I had the opportunity to read that before, before um, reading David Fisher's version. Um, so it was really quite recent for me.
0: And I have my Terence copy right here. There, were, I know which ones I purchased in order for the first like ten or fifteen books, but I was getting two books every two weeks as my salary for babysitting my sister. Which, by the way, was very poor negotiating on my part. Three dollars a week for babysitting is not really a very high salary even for 1985. But the books were coming in so fast at some point that I don't remember when I first got *Stones of Blood*. This copy is in pretty pristine condition, considering that I would have gotten it in 85 or 86, but there are no real dents or scratches. And I I didn't write in it either, except for the cliffhanger marks at the end of chapters three, six, and nine. I didn't put the cast list on the inside cover. I didn't write the story code on the front page like I did with a lot of the books that i gotten earlier in sequence. So this must have been one of the later books that that I got. So that is, of course, the Terrence. Now, David Fisher would have written the audio novelization in 2011. And then a year after that, the audio version of Androids of Tara came out. I know that I have listened to Androids of Tara on audio, and that would have been about a decade ago. And I thought it was a little bit labored and forced. I didn't really appreciate the humor as much as I would in a a a true Douglas Adams-style book. But this was my first time encountering the Stones of Blood novelization. I'd never gotten the audio, so reading the print book last week was the first time that I had encountered the David Fisher in any form. So how about the three of you? And again, we'll start with Keith and then Jim and Fraser. When did you guys first encounter the David Fisher? Was it on audio or was it the print book when it just got released over here?
3: I bought the book and started reading it and got a bit bored, so then I bought the audio book and finished it that way. (laughs) So both. <laughs> so I've done the entire audiobook and I've sort of read half the actual novel itself.
0: So for you, the Susan Engel narration is superior to reading the book in your own voice. Uh, mm,
3: nah, no, no. <laughs> it was easier, but not necessarily better. Um, I think um, her, I don't know what it is. I think Tom Baker's lines really need to be said by Tom Baker. when. Somebody else is doing it, they just come over. It's really annoying. So that was a bit of a, and her version of Romana was quite slappable as well. So it was uh, <laughs> a bit, yeah. But uh, at least she didn't have to do canine because um, uh, John Leeson did canine. So uh, she didn't have to sort of like sip that. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting lesson that way. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of, as I say, a lot of Tom Baker has to be said by Tom Baker to make it work. Because when somebody else is doing it, because a lot of the lines are sort of like uh, similar to the TV version, and hearing it in somebody else's voice with somebody else's delivery doesn't quite do it.
0: Then somewhere in Keith's words, the eagle eared listener can discern exactly what Keith thinks of this novelization. But maybe <laughs> there's a more positive view somewhere else on the panel. Jim, how about yourself?
2: I've not heard the audiobook. Um, when the audiobook came out, I was not listening to any audiobooks. And then obviously when I was starting doing the uh, the Target thing, I did actually start sampling some of the audiobooks. Um, I wasn't even going to get this one, but I stupidly – basically when I was doing my blog, I did all of it in the space of a year. And then I was so far ahead that I've spent the next year just releasing the chapters, uh, one a week. And um, it was only as the, uh, the novelization was coming out – I stupidly asked on Twitter, should I should I cover them on my blog? And it was overwhelmingly yes. So
0: um,
2: a year after finishing the last of the books, I had to do some more. I had to do more work. That's not fair. So uh, I only read it in July this year, um, and I really enjoyed it. I um, because the Terence version is is in that period where he was lashing them out like one every couple of weeks, and it shows. I think this this one and uh, image of the Fendal really show because I think these are ones where you can just read them kind of in time with the episodes as you're watching them. It takes about 90 minutes to read them all the way through. Um, this is a little bit more involved. The writing is a little bit more sophisticated. Um, there's a lot more innuendo um, and a lot more violence. The opening chapter is, is particularly gruesome with the, uh, the shaman having his eyes plucked out. Um, and I enjoy some of the, I enjoy the humor of it. Um, there's, there's extra jokes and all the jokes feel like the sort of jokes Tom Baker would have made had he thought of them. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoy it.
0: <laughs> it is funny. You mentioned that because Michael Stevens, who was the audiobook editor that commissioned this novelization from Fisher in the first place, uh, talks a little bit about how he sent David Fisher the camera scripts. And that evidently is what Fisher worked from. If Fisher had been watching the story on tape or DVD, it doesn't really show up in the book because he doesn't include the opening scene on TV and he doesn't include a couple of ad-libbed lines of dialogue that probably came out in rehearsal or on set after the camera scripts had already been committed to writing. So it looks as if Fisher was only working from one slightly older copy of the story. And that's why his book doesn't match up one-to-one with the TV version. But it's also interesting that you mentioned Image of the Fendal because today – this is being recorded on uh, the Sunday before Halloween. This is the same day that I released my Image of the Fendall episode on Doctor Who Literature, episode 49, with my friend David Barsky. That book is only 103 pages long, and Barsky and I both thought that that novelization was far from Terence's best. Stones of Blood, I like the Terence version, and I'll speak to its defense a little bit later in, in this hour. But the Terence version is only 118 pages long, which is short for him, but it's also about 15 pages longer than Fendall. So I think it's a little bit better than the Fendall book, but of course we can discuss that more fully on Doctor Who Literature in about six weeks' time when the Terence comes up properly. So Fraser, uh, as the baby of the group, <laughs> what was your first exposure to the Fisher book? <laughs> Were you alive when the audio novelization came out in 2011, or – Are you encountering it for the first time in print?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I was alive, but um, yes, I was born in 2011.
0: Thank you, Jason. That makes you 11 years old. Happy birthday!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But no, I hadn't. I haven't. got the the audio book of this. I went straight in for the print version. Um, It did take us a little while to get the print version because, you know, I'd ordered it from a well-known chain of British booksellers who shall remain anonymous. We'll just refer to them as Mortar Bones for now. um, (laughs) Who had, you know, I'd I'd pre-ordered it for release. Um, You know, it took about six weeks for us to get it due to, logistical problems on their side you know I was in a quite a tiz with them emailing backwards and forwards saying you know I need this book give us my book I'm recording a podcast on this book you know I'm going to lose my slot on this podcast send us the book why wouldn't you know know I'm going to have to go to Amazon I don't want to go to Amazon I want to buy it from you Mortar Bones Mm -hmm. Um, so eventually they sent us it like I said about six weeks six weeks late um, uh, and that was in July and then obviously I didn't realize it wasn't even coming out in America until September. So that was a little bit unnecessary of I do apologize, Mortar Bones.
0: Yeah, um, my, my copy arrived early October, so I was very late to the party.
1: Yes, um, but no, um, obviously that gave us, did give us a chance to read the Terence version first and then read David Fisher's version. And to be honest with you, I enjoyed them both. I enjoyed them both. I think I, I, I get what you're saying about like the, the Terence version, you know, he's just kind of chucking them out at this point. But you know, even Terence Dick's chucking out a book. Um, there's a lot to enjoy in it. Um yeah, it's 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 very faithful to what's on the screen. The David Fisher version is a lot more fleshed out. There's a lot more going on in there, you get a lot more background every you know, there's not many characters in this story, there's only about half a dozen all-in, and that includes the two um, campers who get murdered after, you know, three lines of dialogue. Um, but everyone gets a little bit extra in the, in the David Fisher version. With Terence, though, you know, you get Terence's prose, which is always excellent, um, even when he's, you know, just, let you say, bashing out. If that's what he's doing, you know, I often wonder is, does Terence – Leave work that he's got a bit more respect for of the author? Does he look and think, well, David Fisher, I'm not really going to trample on his shoes. I am just going to, um, you know, reproduce what he's written. You know, with other writers, does he feel more comfortable and going in and saying, well, actually, I will add a bit more here and there and I'll do like a little, you know, chapter at the start to give a lot of background? Um, I've often wondered that with, with Terence. But, you know, one thing I love about Terence is is just the way that you can open a novel. You know, the, the Terence version of this, this book opens, it might have been Stonehenge in the days of Druids. A circle of stones stood in a hollow on the dark and lonely plain. Nine massive monoliths set in an irregular circle. One or two tilted, leaning, others still standing foursquare. Only three had the cross pieces were still in place. The others had crashed to the ground long centuries ago. That's the genius of, of, of Tevin Sticks for me. Jim, you mentioned the opening chapter of the David Fisher version, which is much different, you know, and it goes all in for that um, history of the Kaliak, of, of Cesar, of Diplos arriving on Earth Four thousand years ago, and setting up the events, and then going through like the the history of um, Mrs. Trefusis and the evil Lady Montcalm and Signora Camera. That's all in that first chapter. But yeah, it is. It's really brutal, isn't it? Um, I was not expecting to be in the prologue to be reading about someone having his eyes plucked out. Uh,
0: yeah, that's not even remotely hinted at on. Television And Terence just gives us the first scene on TV, but he doesn't go into the backstory. Sometimes Terence will add a prologue if he really, really likes the story. You even get a prologue for the Horns of Naimon. But one thing I like about Terence's first chapter here is he says, as you've already read out, it might have been Stonehenge in the days of the Druids. That's page 7. On page 8, he comes back to that as a refrain. It might have been Stonehenge in the dark dawn of history. So I I think both versions are worthy. But as you say, the Fisher version is 70 pages longer. So he goes more into the backstory. For example, with the campers, he tells us who the campers are and what they're doing there. And he gives us a sort of glimpse into their unhappy developing uh, relationship. So, Jim, you in your Escape to Danger post, which only came out a couple of weeks ago, you at length talked about the different things and embellishments that David gives us in the new book. So, obviously, I'll put a link to your blog post in the show notes, but just for a, a brief podcast purpose, what are some of the things that you like that David Fisher put in, which are not to be found in the Terence original from 30 years earlier? You know, I, I wrote this a few months ago,
2: and I've already forgotten it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the thing that stuck in my mind is, again, again I mentioned earlier, the uh, the sort of joke that Tom Baker might have come up with himself is when um DeFries says oh we have a party coming here from Liverpool and uh, the doctor says not the Beatles wouldn't it be wouldn't the Rolling Stones be more appropriate <laughs> and um I love that because firstly you know Tom Baker's from Liverpool and secondly I don't know whether you know this but the Beatles are actually from Liverpool they never mention this but you know they should probably make more of it but uh so I I just love that and also um the camper uh, on TV is played by Sharon Taylor, who is also from Liverpool, and so am I. So um, there you go. That was my favourite bit of the whole book: <laughs> the fact that it name checks somewhere I have
0: once lived. <laughs> <laughs> I think Vicky in the Chase made a reference to a Beatles museum in Liverpool, which may or may not be the same museum that Dan is giving uh, a tour of in the Halloween Apocalypse. It's it's not, but you
2: can see it from where they are. It's, uh, it's about a five-minute walk from where Dan is. There, there is a real museum there now, and uh, that museum um, is a lovely little thing, actually. That museum faces um, the Liver, Liver Buildings, which is a, a major landmark in Liverpool. The other side of the Liver Buildings, there is a gap where a building used to be. That building used to be a hotel, and um, the Kingston Hotel. And that's where the Liverpool Doctor Who group used to meet Oh wow! When, when I was a member and so was Chris Chibnall. And we were friends when we were teenagers. So when they showed that first shot where the TARDIS lands and my first thought wasn't, oh, look, there's the Albert Dock in all its beauty. It was if if, if we were standing where she is, we'd be able to see where that hotel used to be, where, where me and Chris used to go to the Doctor Who group. So, um Yeah. It it's whenever I, I I took uh you know Graham Burke from the reality bomb podcast. I took him on a tour of Liverpool when he was here a few months ago, and it wasn't the obvious stuff. It was only towards the end of the day when we were walking past this doorway, and I thought, Oh, I should have taken him to the Beatles Museum. I <laughs> didn't think but uh he got t- t- taken all around the bombed-out church where Dan goes for a date with his, his friend and you know, <laughs> all round the all around the museums and everywhere. But I, I just forgot about the Beatles,
1: <laughs> funnily enough. Did you at least take them to the Williamson Tunnels?
2: No, because they're really difficult to find. And I'm not joking, they're really difficult (laughs) to find. They're they're, they're out the other side of the city. Uh,
0: Graham has been on Trap One before. He was on my New Adventures uh, 1991 documentary last year. And of course, he has been on a couple of Doctor Who literatures as well. Uh, Keith, now Fraser and Jim and I have all said positive things about what we like that David Fisher added to the novelization. You gave sort of the impression a few minutes ago that this was not your favorite work of literature in the entire Western canon. So, what are the things that you did or didn't appreciate about the David Fisher novelization? I
3: think part of it was expectation. I've always enjoyed his books previously, so I think I'd I'd probably set it on a higher pedestal than perhaps it achieved. Um, I found a lot of the um, the jolly hockey sticks. sort of like uh, expressions of the professor quite irritating in the book, which I didn't feel on the TV show. Um, The camping scene, I much prefer the campers in Terrence Dix's version. They're sort of like, they can't afford a proper honeymoon, and they're they're just camping, and they're just newly married, and oh, and then they get killed. It's tragic. These campers are so annoying, you're just glad they get killed. (laughs) (laughs) I do like the way they get killed, though. Is that they get absorbed into the rocks and spat out rather than just sort of, like, turned skeletons. I like that in the book. I just find some of it... It wasn't stri-
1: spat out like owl pellets.
3: Yes. <laughs> Continue the bird theme. He's very obsessed with birds in this one. Um, it's oddly structured as well. In, slight, in the book, um, he sort of, like, reveals that and um, Miss Faye is the Kaliak. And in the very next paragraph doing the bit where they're looking at the paintings, where it reveals that she's a Kallak. Well, so, well, why put the revelation there, then do a whole scene where the Doctor realises who it is? Wouldn't it be better to have it there? And there's other things like um, there's a whole bit about how Miss Faye must be terrified of being eaten by the ogre because she has to find victims for them all the time to protect herself. And then later in the book, they do the bit, well, her blood's different anyway, so she's quite safe. So, well, why mention that if that's the case? And just little bits like that just sort of... Um, preyed on me. But I think a big problem was listening to it rather than reading it. I perhaps should have def- stuck with it because um, as, as I say, I think a big problem is Tom Baker has to say those lines. Somebody else, and you can imagine Tom Baker saying those lines, somebody else doing it doesn't work really. And for me, didn't. Bits I did like though, the um, the cliffhanger to part one's much better because Tom's actually in it because he's not re- he can't refuse to do it in a book. So he's actually there to to scare um, Romana off the cliffs.
0: Right. I oh, he pushes a that, doesn't he?
3: Uh, I'm quite glad the Megara would sort of like spinning globes again rather than uh, little flashy lights, which always reminded me of my aunt Phyllis's uh, radio when I was little. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I just, I think I, I hoped it was going to be better than it was. I think when you've got, I suppose, the presumption in a way of rewriting a, something that's already been done, you expect it's going to be a lot better than... The book we already had and apart from little bits like the birds attacking because they've got the budget to do that i don't think it was that much better than terence's original
1: uh, the part one cliffhanger it's you know the doctor P does not physically pushes romana off the cliff it's you know in the broadcast version it's you know she backs away and stumbles but whereas in the book i think it's both books as well you know he actually gives her a good, a good shove and pushes her over. Yeah. And um, <laughs> what I like in the book as well is, you know, she's, she's, you know, the, the, the scene, it's not Mary Tam's finest hour, um, pretending to be stuck on a cliff for however long.
2: <laughs> um,
1: but I like that, you know, again, the birds, which kind of runs through Fisher's book, you know, there's gulls swooping in and attacking ramona on the cliff. So I, th- I thought that was a good addition, that it's not just pushing her off. There's, there's you know, um, wildlife attacking her, the, the birds coming in.
0: Parents, uh, sorry, David, I should say, David Fisher does more with uh, the Kaliach's powers and her abilities. He also expresses the opinion in the book that when the doctor sees the Kaliach in DeVries's house at the end of part one towards the cliffhanger... It's not actually Vivian Fay who is somewhere else. It is Martha in disguise pretending to be, which I yeah. thought was a really neat bit of addition. But there's a very funny scene in television early on in part three, which just shows the comic timing of Beatrix Lehman and Tom Baker. And she would have been a phenomenal companion throughout the rest of season 16 and 17 had the actress not passed away soon thereafter. But It's really a missed opportunity. So I'm going to play the audio clip now, and then we'll do excerpts from both the Terrence and the David Fisher novelization of that scene.
3: Fascinating, isn't it? Doctor, did I understand you correctly? That
0: thing is made of stone. Yes, and it's closing on us fast. But it's impossible. No, it isn't. We're standing still. All right, so that's the clip. Now... Terrence, on page 69 of the 1980 novelization, takes that dialogue and expands it. But by expanding it, I think the TV dialogue is perfect, because you have the comic timing of Beatrix Lehman and Tom Baker. In the book, he uses more words, which I don't think help. The Doctor. But may I remind you, it's catching up on us fast. But that's impossible. Oh, no, it isn't. The thing's still moving, and we happen to be standing still. So there's more dialogue in the Terrence version than on TV. And I think the TV version is perfect. The Terence version doesn't work quite as well. So I was very curious to see what David Fisher was going to do with that. So then we come to page 94 of the uh, David Fisher book. Yes, replied the doctor. And in case you hadn't noticed, it's closing on us fast. But that's impossible. No, it isn't, he pointed out. We're standing still while it's going like the clapper's. Now, this is me being an American and not up on the idiom. I don't even know what that expression means, like the clappers. Can somebody translate British to Jason for me? I mean, you
2: get the yeah, context of it, stuff, don't you? But I don't know. What, actually, I don't know what the clappers is. I hmm. think it's from ringing bells, is it, very
3: fast? When you, were sort of like, when you were being summoned to something, somebody would ring a bell, and if they did it very urgently, they were doing it like the clappers, so you had to go faster. That
0: makes sense. Okay, it's just not that funny. I think the TV line is the best, and then Terrence comes in second, and then <laughs> David Fisher comes in third. But one thing I like that David Fisher does in the same uh, excerpt is that the doctor plays bullfighter, and he decoys the ogre into flying off a cliff, off which Romana had almost fallen an episode earlier. So on page 70 of Terence, the doctor begins taking off his coat. He switched his coat to and fro in front of him and yelled, "Ole!" The monolith rushed at him out of the darkness like a charging bull. The doctor wheeled gracefully, the coat fluttering close to the edge of his body. The monster shot past, misted by inches, and plunged over the edge of the cliff. There was a massive crash, a series of smaller crashes, then silence. So that's Terrence pages 70 and 71. That's actually very good. I like that a lot. But then I turn to the David Fisher book, and he calls chapter 6 Jose Lito, starting on page 93. And I didn't understand what that meant. So the very first thing I did when I got the book is I read that chapter first because I was curious. I don't remember any Jose Lito from TV. It turns out it's a real Spanish bullfighter from the 1920s. And the doctor tells an anecdote about him in the book, the David Fisher book, which is not on television at all. And he talks about a bullfighter who meets a very unfortunate end in the ring. And as someone who's actually been to a bullfight in Spain in August 1985 and having seen a matador get gored, I definitely can relate to that. So that's an embellishment, I think that adds value to the David Fisher book. It's an actual person. You can look him up on Wikipedia and you can see that David has actually done his research for the book. Anyone have any thoughts on that scene or any similar embellishments that David gives us for the second novelization?
1: One, one of the things that stuck out for me that he's added, um, is when the doctor releases the Megara. Um, it's chapter eight. Um, the doctor examined the seals, but once again found them indecipherable. I can't read the script without the TARDIS. He had to translate. He confessed, and I thought that was very modern. That was a modern edition. You know the the idea that the TARDIS translates has come direct from RTD. Um, so I was quite surprised to see that in there.
0: I am positive that David Fisher did not write that line. I am positive because these books go through editors, and the final product is not always 100% the author's own manuscript. So that would have been added in by Michael Stevens for audio. Keith might be able to confirm that. Or if not, then Steve Cole, who edited the audio version for print last year. I'm pretty sure David Fisher would not have been close enough to the new series to put that line in himself. I don't know if Keith or Jim would have an opinion on that. I don't remember, it. Really.
2: Because it's it's the sort of thing that you could just assume, because it's never quite said in, in the old series. It's it's a Time Lord gift, but um, a lot of authors are very prone to just adding their own theories of, of how things work. So it could go either way. I'm not sure. Because hmm. I'm not I sure that they, they, they go into, they don't really go into adding a lot of other new series stuff. So
0: I don't know. Sorry, Keith, you were saying?
3: So I don't remember that line in the audio version. So whether, but I could have missed it. But I do remember thinking, "It's aha, they can't read the writing. We wouldn't get that now." So, but I could have missed um, that line of explanation. But so maybe they have added it for the uh, print version. Mm -hmm.
0: I know in the in the Androids of Tara book, which came out a year later on audio in real life, but the books came out at the same time in the UK and in the states. In the Steve call afterward to Androids of Tara, he does mention that he made some changes between the audio manuscript and the print book, because you have different needs in the recording booth versus in the reader's eyes. A uh, couple of other differences, and this is a line that I think Terrence actually did better, but i like like uh, feedback from you guys. At the very end, the doctor cleverly pulls in Vivian Faye as the Megara are executing him. And he wants to knock her unconscious to give the Megara a pretext for reading her mind and finding out that she's the escaped alien prisoner they've been pursuing this whole time. It is not very well blocked on TV by Daryl Blake, which is why he did not start a side business after his directing career ended. Blocking by Blake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a, one of them like a lead balloon. <laughs> 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 so... Uh, it's not quite clear on TV what he's doing, so in both novelizations it's made a little bit clear. But there's this gap in the story where Vivian Fay is unconscious and her fate is being decided by the Doctor and the Megara. So both Terrence and David Fisher seize on this. One author says the following, Vivian Fay was awake and on her feet, unable to grasp how things had gone so suddenly wrong for her. That's one author. The other author, she was aware that something momentous had happened. But what? So let's just do a quick survey among the three of you. Which of those lines is better, and who wrote what, starting with Keith?
3: I would think the latter one was Fisher, and I don't mind both either, really. But, yeah, I think that was probably Fisher. The, yeah.
2: the second. Jim, how about you? Uh... I agree with Keith, yeah. I mean, the, the thing with that scene that bothers me the most is that, um, and you kind of explained it earlier, because they're working from the uh, the scripts, both of them, I think, they're not watching the tapes. So they never at any point say, Vivian Faye, who by now was dressed entirely in silver from head to foot, including her skin. They never allude to that. Um, so... Clearly, this is what happens when you get straight men talking about fashion. You know, they, they just completely, they completely miss the fact that she comes in and she's absolutely amazing. <laughs> That's the thing I would focus on. So I don't know. I don't know which one would say that line.
0: I would say as a straight man, I found Susan Engel and Silver very appealing <laughs> sitting here in Brooklyn. Uh, Fraser, how about yourself?
1: Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm three for three. I think um, the first one was, was probably my favorite as well.
0: Yeah, the first one is Terence, and uh, that is page 119. And the second one is going to be your David Fisher, and that is page 181. I prefer the Terence version of the line, but that's because I read Terence first, and I have that's so that's what my loyalties are. I think David's line is great. I think if I had read the Fisher novelization first, that would be the line that I wanted as my head But having read the both in the order that I did, I prefer Terence's, but it's close. You know, it's 90 to 80. It's not 90 to 10.
2: There's um, a scene very early on that I think, again, you could look at the style of writing, but you could also look at how the economy um, actually helps the scene. So um, one version says, actually, I won't play the game. I'll just say. So uh, (laughs) on TV, we, we meet Amelia Rumford, and then the doctor says, watch out. There's something dodgy about those two but you're not really given any sense that there is because you've got this very enthusiastic old lady and a very charming uh, younger woman, but the Doctor is suddenly suspicious of them. Um, In the Terence version, and presumably he knows um, who actually plays Amelia Rumford. so he's saying, The woman was quite old, though her back was straight, her eyes clear and alert, her straggly hair was a snowy white, her face a mass of lines and wrinkles, it was the face of a woman of formidable character. Terence is, is in love with this woman. He's saying she's amazing. Whereas the second version, we just get told she's a formidable lady in her late 60s, which kind of preserves the mystery a little bit more of should we trust her. Mm. So in that version, because he says less, it actually gives us more. Whereas Terence has just gone, oh yeah, she was amazing, wasn't she? Oh, let's let's bash that out. She was formidable. She's lovely. <laughs> But they they both use the word formidable, so maybe that was in the uh, the script. Maybe it's the character is a formidable woman.
0: That's true. And he also David Fisher changes the spelling. She's Amelia with an A in the end credits on TV, and she's Amelia with an A in the Terence version. But she's changed to Amelia with an E, two E's actually, in the David Fisher version. Also, it's Boscombe with an S on TV, and it's Bodcombe uh, with a D in the David Fisher. I don't know if it's a real place or or why that was changed, if at all.
1: I think Boscombe is a real place but Bodcombe is not. I think I looked that up last night. Okay. Yeah, Boscombe is um uh, a small town in Dorset. Um Bodcombe is presumably just designed to make you think of a, a town in small town in Dorset.
0: That might have been a legal note, maybe because Boscombe is a real place. Uh, the uh, the editors for the 2022 20, uh, book decided they couldn't actually use the real name. Maybe that's why it was changed. Maybe the
2: tourism of Boscombe decided that the BBC had been deceitful in not telling them they'd been filming there. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a topical joke for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question. I'll go around the table, starting with Keith is vivian Faye an agent of the black guardian and is she aware of why the doctor is really there on a quest for the key to time
3: she knows that he wants the pendant because she sort of more or less says that at the end you won't get what you're looking for and then he just snatches it off her but this thing about being the agent of the black guardian i think that is uh, trendy revisionism i don't think that's the case i've watched the uh, the episodes again this week because, uh, well, because it was doing this and um, a friend of mine wanted to watch some classic Who, so the two combined beautifully and um, I didn't get that impression at all. I think it's nice fan theory but I don't think there's anything on the telly or in the book to suggest that.
0: Jim, how about you? Now that Keith has firmly shot me down like an avid duck hunter, <laughs> how about yourself?
2: Um, Vivian Flay is not an agent of the Black Guardian but her crow is. <laughs> ah. And having failed in his mission, <laughs> he was he was killed, stuffed, and mounted on the Black Guardian's head as punishment.
0: <laughs> 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 Fraser, I don't know if you can top that, but give us your opinion. <laughs> no, absolutely,
1: I can't. I think that's that's the perfect summation. Um, no, she's not an odd agent of the of the Black Guardian. She's very much uh, an agent of her own. Um, you know, she's far too self-centered and self-absorbed to be aware of what else is going on. You know, the the seal of Diplos presumably that is dependent in the segment for the key to time. It's it's interesting that it has its powers, it has abilities, you know, no other key, no other segment of the key has these abilities, does it? I mean, other than possibly the one that crawl eats and You know, turns them into a giant octopus squid thing. let us give thanks to crow um that's that's, that's a really interesting thing about the story is that the illusion that you know the different segments of the to time have different abilities and you know knowserv diplos has been able to manipulate her segment to you know change appearance and you know look like the doctor to push Romano off the cliff and that sort of jazz um but other than that no she she's got no idea what's going on
0: Now, the last time I watched this story back in 2021 as part of my Twitter pilgrimage, I did get the distinct impression that Vivian was meant to be an agent of the Black Guardian and that she knew it. Three reasons. Number one, because you have the White Guardian breaking into the console room at the beginning, saying, "Beware the Black Guardian? That's in TV and in both books. Secondly, you have the close-up of the crow in DeVries' house. And as Jim alludes, we later see that mounted on the Black Guardian's head (laughs) during season 20. What's that? Don't be afraid. It's only a crow.
1: Ooh, it
2: looks evil.
0: comes
3: the one foretold is here
0: and then there's the line which is both on TV and in the Terence book page 121 if Miss Faye stood in the center of the circle of stones she raised her head and looked at the doctor her eyes filled with hatred if you let them do this to me doctor you'll never find what you're looking for that line is not in the David Fisher version that leads me to believe that Vivian knows the Doctor is out for the pendant and knows what it's for, but that's taken away from the David Fisher version. So it may have been a late addition in rehearsal or on set that, or on location that day, which wasn't in the camera scripts that Fisher was given. I think All right, f- right, so...
2: famously you've also got the, one of the big changes, uh, an accident, isn't it? The um, the Terence Dix version has a character mentioned called Dr. Cornish Fogo. Because he's misunderstood the line as opposed to an academic who specialized in Cornish focus, which are these sort of primitive um, buildings. So um, That's, it, it, it's, yes. a, it's a real shame, but Terence gets it wrong. So David fixes it for the uh, the second version.
0: Tony Witt, who does the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, had covered Stones of Blood, uh, this novelization, the Fisher novelization. And he told an anecdote that David Fisher hated the Terence version of the book. And one of the reasons why he hated the Terence version of the book is that Terence missed the Cornish Fugus reference and thought that the line referred to a professor rather than an actual uh, Mm. cave. So in the Fisher novelization, he rewrites the line to make it more obvious that Cornish Fugus is not a name, but rather an actual thing.
2: I wonder whether he really hated it because Terence was taking the check, to be honest with you, because when t- when, when Terence often tells the anecdote about, you know, I was writing all of the books and then suddenly the authors decided they wanted to write them themselves, you know. And in my mind, it's, uh, it's a toss-up between David Fisher and Terence Dudley, which one he's actually thinking of when he says that. Because mm. they, they both rapidly start doing their own.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, I don't think Terrence was able to retire just off the residuals or the royalties from Stones of Blood. Uh, Target was not paying a king's ransom even even in those days. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So uh, we are pretty much at the end of our hour here. I'll just go around the room first. Any final thoughts on the David Fisher novelization? I can see Keith is champing at the bit to get one last dig in. And then after that, where can we find all of you all online or on other podcasts? Keith, starting with
3: you. I, I, I don't want people to think it's a terrible book. It is isn't. I just <laughs> I, I just genuinely thought it was going to be better uh, than the Terence one. But uh, I love the little bits, um, let's say, with the bird attack, especially the one at the beginning is particularly wonderfully grim. I quite like the foreword as well by his, uh, by his son. which so basically said how his father was quite perplexed in later life, how after everything he wrote, it was his Doctor Who scripts for which he was remembered basically which is quite pleasant and how his father advised his son not to become a writer so that's naturally what he did so I thought that was quite, uh, quite pleasant but um, yeah but otherwise I am just on Twitter as 50dw50 I don't have a podcast I don't
0: have blogs so I don't write books but you are a regular on trap one so we look forward to your I next am. return appearance and <laughs> Fraser you. how about you buddy
1: um yeah I think it's it is a good book I think I say. Um the strength for me is, is how well fleshed out um everything is, you know, you get background about uh, Professor Rumford, you get background about the um the campers, you know, everyone, Martha, the um the the associate of the free two wants to join the druids so she can have an orgy and get out the WI
0: that sort of <laughs> stuff.
1: <laughs> You know, those little bits is is what really you know makes this book for me. And like Jim says as well, you know the the extra jokes that David Fisher has added in because he's a very good writer. David Fisher, I think he's he's yeah. probably l- overlooked quite a bit because he does come along at the same time as Douglas Adams and he's very similar in his style and um, the way he writes the the type of jokes he tells and the type of story he wants to tell is very similar to Douglas Adams. And obviously, Douglas Adams has went off and been a lot more successful. Um, but yeah, I would I would say you know if you, if you're a fan of David Fisher, go out and buy this book. You'll not be disappointed. Um, as for me, you'll find me on Twitter as at Felix Fraser, and you will find me on other podcasts, which is Hamster with a Blood Penknife, Gallifrey's Most Wanted, and obviously Trap One as well.
0: And Doctor Who literature, where you have been on a couple of times, and will be on several times again in the coming weeks and months. And you will be I on. I certainly hope so. You'll be on in about a month for our Underworld recording, which you have been trailing very effectively on Twitter.
1: yes looking forward to that one
0: and jim any last words and where else can we find you
2: yeah um you know uh, while we're talking there i just had to look up david fisher because um as fraser said in my mind uh david fisher and douglas adams emerge at the same time i'm shocked to discover he was actually working on tv for about a decade before he came to doctor who He, he did quite a lot of stuff that just you know didn't uh, cross my path because it was all proper drama rather than <laughs> silly silly <laughs> panto with glittery monsters and stuff but he's um it's funny because when I was reading his books uh for the blog i I kept making this comparison to Douglas Adams, but I wonder whether it was just because that style of writing was what they wanted, and they just found two writers who could both deliver that sort of thing and then obviously when um Douglas Adams takes over. He, he he brings him in again, and then rewrites his his whole script. So I don't know. It's um. I'm now wanting to look back on on um, David Fisher's other stuff to discover what he's like, because outside of Doctor Who, I know nothing about him. And I was incredibly grateful for uh, for his son Nick's forward to the book because all the way through writing this blog, I've been trying to find out who the uh, the influences were for these authors, and. Every single interview by a Doctor Who fan completely fails to go, who are your influences? What inspired you? I would love someone to provide an interview with Ian Martyr where he says, well, for the horror stuff, I was really into uh, Lovecraft or, or some kind of evidence, but they always say, what was it like adapting a story you acted in? Um, on that bombshell, uh, you can find me on Twitter on at monster underscore maker. And you can read my witterings about target books on escapetodanger.net. The last chapter uh, is on its way, which is Rose, because it's the last sort of consecutive novelization. And then there's a little bit of a break. And then from the middle of November, I am publishing chapters of a brand new novelization of a Doctor Who story that has
0: never been novelized before. <laughs> Very exciting. We're out of time. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great night. For Jim and Fraser and Keith, this is Jason. I am at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels on Twitter. You have been listening to the Trap One podcast, and thank you as always for joining us. The executive producer of the Trap One podcast is Mark, who you can find on Twitter, at Quark QuarkMcMalice. Please check out my solo podcast, Doctor Who Literature, currently available on most of your podcatchers of choice. And, of course, through my Twitter handle. You can find Trap One on Twitter at Trap One Underscore. That's Trap O-N-E Underscore. Then you can find all past episodes on TrapOne.Podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks for listening. Trap One will return with a new panel next week. We hope you'll come back and join (laughs) them.